Well, as we know, we are in the week of Thanksgiving, which also means the week that our culture has unleashed upon us Christmas commercials and Black Friday deals and reminders of the right stuffing and the right mashed potatoes and all that stuff. And most of us will find ourselves around some table, perhaps, or some gathering or some moment over the next week where we will say thank you. Thank you to the people who invited us over. Thank you uh, to the God, perhaps, who provided the food on the table. Thank you is the buzzword in our culture this week. And most of us are courteous enough to know what it means to say thanks. It's not just something we say for Thanksgiving Day. If you've ever had a job interview, perhaps you were told that protocol after a job interview was to send a thank you note or a thank you email to the interviewers, the corporation, the organization you want to work for. Many parents will direct their children to write a thank you note after they receive a gift or Christmas gifts or have a birthday party. Parents are really strong, usually, on telling their children to say thank you after they receive anything from Halloween candy, even if it's the Almond Joys, or <laughs> something like that. I remember taking my children to get immunizations, and my uh, middle son was three years old at the time, and he still had those big, fat, toddler kind of turkey legs, and he got four shots you know, right in the leg, four immunizations. And out of habit, I looked at him while he was screaming his head off, and I said, now say thank you. <laughs> and the nurse looked at me, and she goes, oh, he doesn't have to say thank you. She goes, I just stuck him four times in the leg. But that, that's habits. Maybe we text a quick THX when someone does something kind for us. And all across Facebook or social media, whatever it is, this week there'll be some sort of memes trending that tell us some funny joke about Thanksgiving. If any of you watch Jimmy Fallon, you might love his thank you notes segment. And we take the cultural niceties that we've become accustomed to and wisely apply them to our faith. Those of us who are Christians might say, thank God for certain things. And sometimes they're profound things, and other times it's, thank God I found a parking spot. Thank God it was warm in November. Thank God it was sunny, or it rained, or it snowed. Thank God I wasn't late. I would have missed the movie. We just say things like that. If you were to go home this afternoon and write a thank you note to God, if you were to sit down old school with a pen in your hand and nice paper, if you even have nice paper in our electronic culture, and if you were to carve out a few minutes to write a thank you note to God, think about that for a second, a thank you note to God, what would it say? How would you start it out? How long would it be? How would you sign it at the end? My guess is many of us might start out with a dear God. Maybe we would say, hey, sorry, it's been a while since we've talked, been a little busy. I know you understand, God. Maybe we'd throw out a preliminary easy thank you. Like again, thank you for nice weather in November. Or thank you for that thing you let happen with the cubs. It was about time. Thank you, God, for that. Maybe we would go a little Further, maybe we would thank God for the warmth of the place from which we write, the gift that is paper and pen, 
or literacy, education that allows us to know what the words are and the ability to put them on paper. Maybe we would thank God for the job or the people who provided the space from which we write. And maybe if we had our wits about us, we would lift our head up and we would look around the room and we would take inventory of all the things that surround us or the people in our presence. And maybe we would dare to thank God for the people who love us, despite our flaws, despite how crazy we can be, how atrocious we can be at times, how adamant, how stubborn we can be, we might thank God that people love us in spite of that. Maybe we would thank God for our salvation. And maybe at the end we would sign off and say, hey, if it's not too much to ask, can you keep the good stuff coming? Thank you, God. And I would love to submit to you all today that those are great things. And a letter that would sound like that is a wonderful thing. And I personally, I can say that I think a lot of us would write letters like that because I have sat in circles with many of you in this room and we have prayed prayers that sound like that. And some of us have read books that invite us to pray like that. And I personally have journaled thoughts that sound like that. And some of you have shared with me your stories and I know you have said things that sound like that. And the fact that both our Christian culture and our wider culture has not lost the art of giving thanks is a wonderful thing. It shows there's still some shred of grace and dignity left in this audacious culture we inhabit right now. But what I'd love to suggest is that all of the preliminaries that I just walked us through are nothing more than a beginning of what true gratitude is. And they are not bad things. These are wonderful ways to give thanks. But they are just the beginning of what true, biblical, God-honoring gratitude is all about. And if you walk through the scriptures, especially the Apostle Paul or the Psalms, you will see that over and over and over again, biblical writers give thanks to God. It would be difficult to read a chapter of scripture and not find a moment where somebody said, thank you. Paul said things like, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will. Giving thanks in all circumstances is not just a cultural nicety, it is God's will. Paul also said, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, in every situation, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And when you are able to do that, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In the Old Testament, the book of First Chronicles, which is a book that lots of us skip, you kind of open it and it's, wow, it's lists of names and all sorts of things that might be difficult for our contemporary ears to understand. But in the Old Testament book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 23, King David is up there in his years. His transition plan is fully underway, and he takes and appoints his son Solomon to take his place as king over all of Israel. And as he does this, he gathers the, nation, the, the tribes of Israel, there's 12 of them, and he gathers them all, and he begins to give instructions 
for what the life of Israel is going to look like once he transitions power and leadership to Solomon. And there's a tribe called the Levites. And they have been assigned the task of carrying on the religious life of Israel. Israel, when they wandered in the desert, would have a tabernacle. It was portable church. It was chairs you had to set up every time you got together. We don't know anything about that, do we? And you would set up the tent, and the religious life of the community would then be led by the Levites. And now they are in a place in their history where they have permanent space. They have a temple. And David says, I'm going to assign all of you the task of overseeing the religious life of Israel. He says, I need 24,000 men who are over 30 years of age, these are the specifics he lays out, to step forward and assume leadership of the religious life of Israel. And then he tells them this. Well, actually, he divides them up a little bit more, and he actually assigns Aaron and Moses their leadership roles at this time. And after he's got everybody divided up and lined up, he says this. He says, the duty of the Levites was to help Aaron's descendants in the service of the temple of the Lord. And then he goes on and tells them what they're supposed to do. He says they are to be in charge of the courtyards and the side rooms, the purification of all sacred things, the performance of other duties at the house of God. He says they were in charge of the bread that was set out on the table, the special flour for the grain offerings. He says they're in charge of the thin loaves that are made without yeast. They're in charge of the baking and the mixing and the measurements and the quantity. It sort of sounds like getting ready for Thanksgiving dinner in some ways. And they are in charge of all the religious items. And then he says this. He ends it with this. He says, and they are to stand every morning and thank and praise the Lord. And they are to stand and thank and praise the Lord every single evening. The beginning of their vocation, their calling, their religious work, their life is, is, is thanking God. And at the end of their day, they are to stand again in the presence of God and thank him. They are not to send one last email. They are not to make one last phone call. They are to stand in the presence of God and say thank you. This is a glimpse at what biblical gratitude looks like. It infuses our entire day. Gratitude should be the first thing we head toward when we wake up in the morning, and it should be the last thing in our thoughts at the end of a day. And my guess is we wake up in the morning with a million thoughts running through our head, and some of us have a hard time turning our day off because we can't calm our rapid minds down. Biblical gratitude is thanksgiving to God all throughout the day. Gratitude is active. It is not passive. Anne Lamott says this, gratitude begins in our hearts and then dovetails into behavior. It almost always makes you willing to be of service, which is where the joy resides. And she puts it this way, she goes, it means you're willing to stop being such a jerk, she says. When you are aware, all of a sudden, of all that has been given to you in your lifetime, and even in the past few days and hours, she says it's hard not to be humbled. It's hard to be calloused 
It's hard not to give back when you really take stock of all you've been giving. Gratitude is the natural response. I think this is part of what Jesus was getting at in Luke chapter 12 when he said this, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much, much more will be asked. If you have a lot to be grateful for, if you have been blessed with a lot, the expectation, not the request, but the demand of Jesus is that we respond actively by giving back. Gratitude is active. It is not passive. And I think that most of the time, myself included, my experience of gratitude is passive. You have a moment where you say thanks. You have one day out of 365 that we set aside and say, this is Thanksgiving. And it's truncated. The conversation often stops there. The scripture tells us that conversation is to keep going and that the consistent routine of our life is gratitude and an outpouring because of what we have received. Active, overflowing gratitude can be found in the story of the prostitute in Luke chapter 7. There's a Pharisee, his name is Simon. Some of you might know this story. And Simon hates Jesus. He hates Jesus. Jesus is a young, upstart rabbi. He's got the crowds on his side. He's winning the popularity contest, and Simon can't stand it. So Simon hosts a gathering at his house, and the intent that Simon has in his heart is to trip up Jesus, is to prove Jesus a fool. And at the party is the town prostitute. Simon thinks this is great because Jesus is going to be caught up in a scandal somehow. This is good political commentary in Simon's opinion. And the woman comes flying to the feet of Jesus, sobbing, and she takes her hair and she cleans and wipes the feet of Jesus with her tears and her hair. And instead of admonishing her or belittling her or calling her out for her foolishness, Jesus says this to Simon, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Meaning she knew, she knew she was the bottom rung on the ladder. She knew full well all of her sins and everything she had done wrong. And she was willing to run to the feet of Jesus and confess it all and in a blubbering, sobbing mess, come to Jesus and lay herself at his mercy. She had been forgiven much. And that gave her the power to go give it back and to love a lot. And Simon didn't think he had much to be forgiven for. A Pharisee, a religious leader, he had done so much right. He surely didn't need Jesus. And you can see the ice hard edge of his face in our mind of him feeling like he didn't need forgiveness. And therefore, he was not able to give and love much. Jesus does this with the woman at the well, too. He meets her in all of her messiness, in all of her brokenness, 
She is a complete scandal to her community. She is drawing water at the well at high noon because it is the time of day that no one else would be there because she was not allowed to be with anybody else in her culture. They hated her. And Jesus meets her there. And he explains to her the gift of forgiveness that he is extending to her. And her response is to receive that and go racing back to her community and tell them breathlessly, they've got to come. She says, come, see a man who told me I, everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah, she asks her village? And they all came out of the town and they made their way toward him. Their experience of Jesus brought them to a place of overflowing gratitude where they could not help but spill what they had received back to others. The question for us is, do we feel that way about what Jesus has done for us? Do we overflow with gratitude, not just for the fact that we can afford groceries or have a car, and those are still good things, of course, to be grateful for, but do we overflow with gratitude for our salvation? Is that the posture that we come to God with every single day? Overflowing gratitude where we cannot help but get up and race to the village or to the next group of people or the next event or the next opportunity to say, I have experienced something so amazing. I cannot help but overflow my life into yours. Gratitude and grace come from the same root word in Greek. We wouldn't realize this when we read it in our English translations, but if you were reading it in Greek, you would see, just like thanks and thanksgiving, you see the connection. Gratitude and grace are inextricably linked in the original Greek language that the New Testament was authored in. Eucharistus and charis, thanks and grace, Gratitude and thanks. Eucharistus literally translated means the giving of thanks for God's grace. They are linked. It is because of God's grace that we can give thanks. Ann Voskamp says this. She says, grace is never passive. Grace is a hijacker. Grace hijacks the dark, the impossible, the unlikely, the angry, the cynics, the doomed. Your calling is radically this. Gloriously hijack every darkness with grace. This is the invitation that we have as people of faith, is to let the gratitude and the joy of our hearts overflow with grace into all of the dark places with our faith, with our resources, with our relationships, with our time, we have this high and mighty calling to hijack the dark. Do you see how gratitude, when we look at it biblically, is so much more than just, hey, thanks for that. I'll talk to you tomorrow. But it's a lifestyle. It's a movement of God through our lives that ripples out into our communities and ripples out into the world. The Apostle Paul was so passionate. The custom in the ancient Near East in letter writing, which is a lost art if you think about it now 
in our culture, but there was an art form to writing letters. And it was customary in the ancient Near East to provide thanks in your letters. Thanks in the way that we would probably similarly do it today. Thanks for this, thanks for that. And Paul holds to that custom. He gives a word of thanks, usually by the second chapter of every single one of his letters. But he goes so much further with it. He doesn't just say, thanks for reading my letter. Thanks for being the church that supports me or whatever it is. He consistently thanks God for the grace. In 1 Corinthians, he says, I give thanks to my God because of the grace. I'm able to give thanks because of the grace that God has given you in Christ Jesus. He says in 2 Corinthians, it's all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase the thanksgiving and the glory to God. And if you read through Paul's letters over and over and over again, he gives thanks for the grace of God. And that is what fuels him to be the man that he was. He wrote almost all of the New Testament letters. And over and over and over again, he was mocked, he was belittled, he was betrayed, but he was also loved. And when you read his letters, you read his conversations with his closest friends who were caring for him and loving for him as he carried on his work. If we read Paul, if we trust the scriptures, we can see the mighty invitation that we have to live in that same way. And it is hard in our culture because, as I said, grace and gratitude are truncated in our culture. And we struggle and suffer from this sort of fear of missing out disease that we have in our culture. And we receive great things, and many times we kind of look around and go, oh, but is there something else? Did somebody get something better than me? My kids do this on Christmas morning. They rip open a present and they immediately go, what'd he get? What'd she get? Years ago, many years ago, my dad took me and my two boys to their first Cubs game. And they were two and five years old. And he got, like, I think it was sixth row, first baseline seats. And we drove into this city. And it was a day out with Grandpa, so Papa, they call him. So they got baseball hats and they got T-shirts. We probably dropped over $100 from the entrance to the seats. My dad got what looked like a five-pound bag of peanuts. The boys got hot dogs, and they got giant root beers, even the two-year-old, and they could hardly carry them. And we walked down to the seats, and I was like having this moment with my dad. I'm like, we're at Wrigley Field. This is great with my boys. And we lined them up, and I showed my oldest son. I pointed. I said, there, buddy, there's the baseball players. There's the big guys you see on TV. Their jerseys are so close, you can almost touch them, right? And we looked out, and I was like, there's the ivy, and there's the old scoreboard. And I was trying to explain to him how they run up and down and change the scores. And I showed him the rooftops. And then they sat down, and we had this moment of pride. And my oldest son looked at me. He goes, so is this all there is? He goes, how long are we going to have to sit here? And my dad was like, oh, <laughs> My dad was like, what? I didn't even have words. I mean, out of the mouth of babes, right? But is, has this ever been your experience? Because it's certainly been mine. Is this all there is? I mean, you took me to Wrigley Field, but really, I mean, how long do I have to sit here, God? 
I've received, I've received, I've received. I'm in the moment that God has created for me, and sometimes all I can do is look around and go, is this all there is? Because somebody else has it better, or I'm afraid of something else that's going to happen. Instead of overflowing with gratitude for the moment that I've been given, I truncate it, and I stop it, and I, I don't give myself permission to truly live into it. Clearly, God is a lot bigger than Wrigley Field, although sometimes some people might say they're pretty close. <laughs> but the reality is, this is the invitation we've been given, to not stop and sit with all of our goodies and our salvation and go, all right, I got what I, th I think I need, but is this all there is? Is there more? It's to begin to just overflow that stuff right back out. It's like pouring hose water in a bucket. When the bucket starts to overflow, it just keeps going. If the hose keeps pouring in, the bucket keeps pouring out. And God will never stop pouring into you. Even on the day that it feels like he didn't pour as much into you as he poured into somebody else, God is pouring into you. And the bucket can overflow out every single day, no matter what the circumstances. I think this is why Stuart Hine, when he wrote the hymn, How Great Thou Art, had this line, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, what does he say? I scarce can take it in. I can't even take in what's been given to me. So much so that I can't even help but flow it back out. Interestingly, Denzel Washington, a man of deep faith, I did not know this about him, Here's something that he wrote recently. He said, give thanks for blessings every day. Every day, embrace gratitude. Encourage others. It is impossible to be grateful and hateful at the same time. I pray that you put your slippers way under your bed at night so that when you wake in the morning, you have to start on your knees to find them. And while you're down there, say thank you goes back to that Old Testament passage, First Chronicles. Start every day on your knees. Let your life overflow into whatever situation you're in, whatever place you're in. It's not a mistake that you're there. Whether it's good or bad, you are there. And let your life overflow. And let it carry you to the end of the day where you surrender again to God and say, thank you, God, for today. This is gratitude. This is the movement of God through the lives of his people. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you again. We realize that we start a lot of prayers by saying that. Thank you. We don't take that lightly today. We truly thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for our salvation, for the love you've given us, for the place and the time and history that you have called us to. Let us be wise stewards of all you have provided for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.